I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show, and it's good to have you listening. Most of us remember decisions that our parents explained away with, because I said so. Perhaps you've even repeated it as a parent yourself. When our guest's father made a decision that would turn her young life upside down, he explained it with, because God told us to, and Rachel Louise Snyder's life wouldn't be the same after. In her new memoir, Miss Snyder chronicles the loss of her mother and her father's decision to move them away from all that was familiar to join a strictly fundamentalist church. She writes, cancer took my mother, but religion would take my life. Miss Snyder is a journalist and professor of creative writing and journalism at American University in Washington, D.C. Her memoir is titled Women We Buried, Women We Burned, and she joins us from New York. And welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say that in reading about your father's decision and what follows, you know, as the reader, it seems as incomprehensible today as it must have seemed then. And I'm wondering when and how you realized that your dad was growing quite attached to this brand of strict evangelicalism. Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I mean, I think it was pretty, pretty immediate. My mother who had been Jewish um, and my father was Christian, you know, when I was a kid before she died, we celebrated both holidays, you know, whichever, whichever holiday came, we celebrated it. And um, including the Steelers, of course, because we lived in Pittsburgh. (laughs) It was a requirement of being a a resident in the 70s in Pittsburgh. So we we would have Hanukkah and Christmas and, you know, Passover and Rosh Hashanah and New Year's and all the all those holidays, but um, and Easter. But after my mother died, I think my father really felt he was not sufficient as a single parent, particularly a single father. And he married pretty soon, but he married a woman who lived 500 miles away, who went to my aunt and uncle's church, which was part of the the sort of burgeoning uh, preaching health and wealth uh, are your birthrights, you know, kind of uh, fundamentalism, evangelical Christianity and, um, they all, all four of them said, you know, God told us to do this or God told us to do that. And I had never, we had never had language like that in my house. God had never spoken directly to an adult (laughs) in my house. Um, So I think right away I was suspicious. And then as the months and years built up and my father dug in more and more, it became obvious that he was really enmeshed in this in this culture and this lifestyle. You know, it sounds like the church that he joined was part of the prosperity gospel, which I know still yes. thrives today, and I've read a lot of what Kate Bowler, the um, mm-hmm. religious scholar, has written about this. And I went back to see how, precisely how she describes it. She says, uh, it's a theosity, theodicy, an explanation for the problem of evil. It's an answer to the questions that take our lives apart. Does that sound familiar to to what your father was drawn to and what you grew to know? (sighs) Yeah. As you read that, I I could feel that description in my body. I I, I mean, I can feel it in, I mean, I just had like a shot of adrenaline or something go through me. Absolutely. That is it. It dismantles, um, any agency that humans really have over their lives in some sense and makes you a servant of the patriarchy, a servant of an authoritarian figure, almost always a man, almost always. And yeah, it's, it absolutely was a big part of the prosperity gospel. You know, I find that interesting that you, that you described it as, um, it kind of it takes away, erases agency, a, a person's agency, because, you know, in the face of the loss of your mother, you would have naturally been looking for some, well, for reassurance. 
affirmation that you could still be a family, even as your father was giving up a lot of that agency. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's a tough thing because I think in fairness to him, being a single man, a single father was not uh, something that was acceptable in the 70s. But we did have, before we left Pittsburgh and moved to Chicago, we did have an aunt and we had my my father's mother, my grandmother, who was, you know, they came to the house, they brought us casseroles, they, they sort of filled in a little bit, you know, they helped clean. Um, but I think my father felt very much like it, it had disrupted, my mother's death had dis- disrupted the natural order of things. And he had mm-hmm. to restore order. I think that's a fair way to put it. And in the beginning, I think he probably thought, oh, this is a perfect solution. I've met a woman mm-hmm. who shares my beliefs. My, you know, my own mother being Jewish, uh, I know that that was a conflict with them often. And part of how I know that is that they didn't go to the other's <laughs> church or temple. Um, so it was a sort of, you know, line in the sand, cold war between them. So here my father finds a woman who believes as he believes who has two children herself from her first marriage, which ended in divorce. And those two kids are very close to our age. So, you know, we were called the Brady Bunch. People referred to us as the Snyder Bunch. And it was not like that at all. In fact, that show, I find that show really triggering <laughs> today. <laughs> do you? Why? I do, yeah. Because they're so happy. And they don't have any money problems. And... um and their fights are so banal, you know, no one's <laughs> punching each other or fist fighting in, in the Brady Bunch. Right. <laughs> you know what I was curious about is how much of your father's either it was a conscious decision or you just didn't talk about feelings that were leading you to choices that you were made were making and you weren't explaining them to your kids in the 70s. You know, I wondered if how much of this were were parenting norms in those days and how much of it was your father's own character and then being drawn into this church. What do you think? You know, I'm so glad you asked me that because it's a really important question. And it's easy to look at my father and say, my God, what a monster. He, he beat you. He hit you. He whatever. But those, the spankings, for example, that we had in my house, um, those were not merely the norm in the church. Of course, they were the norm in the church. Spare the rod, spoil the child, which of course doesn't even come from the Bible, but is quoted all the time as if it's from the Bible. Um, but that was all very normal. What wasn't normal was the, the method of spanking, which was with um, my real mother's, my dead mother's sorority paddle. And they're quite thick and heavy. So it was really abusive. I mean, it left welts. It left you kind of unable to sit for a day or two comfortably. And then that gave way to other types of violence, punching, kicking. I threw a phone at my father once. He threw me against the wall. Those things were not the norm even then. Um, so it was, it was a slippery slope. But I do think if you're looking back on something, you have to, you have to give the historical context. Otherwise, you're not being honest as a writer. You're not being fair to people who do not have the luxury of writing a book about their experience, you know? Um, and so it is important for me to so, say things like my father probably felt inadequate as a single man in the 70s. That seems to be of the age. Yeah. And so I, I was curious about the the use, your father's use of paddling, which as you've just explained, grew into slapping and hitting and some pretty violent confrontations. Initially, do you think he thought the hitting, the paddling was sanctioned by the philosophy of the church, but that 
when this happened, it would slip from his grasp and kind of spin out of control. Absolutely, I think he felt it was sanctioned by the church. And not only that, but the school that we went to, my aunt and uncle's school, which was a private evangelical tiny, tiny, tiny school we went to for four years when we first moved, they spanked us too. So it was Mm. in the entire cultural milieu. I think even when my father, when he turned to other forms of violence, at some point they, they hit me so hard with this paddle that it splintered. My brother, in fact, glued it back together and has it at his house today. And he, <laughs> he offered it to me a couple of times. And I was like, you know what? Not only do I not want it, I never want to see that thing again. I never want to talk about this again. <laughs> um, but when that paddle splintered, the violence didn't stop. And that's when I think um, my father felt that he still was the authority. He still was the person who had to be obeyed in the house. Um, But there was something wrong. We were sent uh, for a very short period of time to a Christian therapist named Pierre Chestang, who is still in operation, I think, in Florida today. Totally ineffectual. But going to a therapist... Uh, suggested that there was some manner in which my father at least recognized that this was beyond the norm of, you know, what was normally done in terms of, of punishment, corporal punishment. You know, as, as well as you can remember, was your father that kind of authority figure in your, in your mom and dad's marriage? Or no, or is this no, something not that at really all. okay? So your mother never would have sanctioned a lot of what he was doing once your mother died. Never, never. And my my mother was the was the the sort of head of our house. Even though she was ill, she was strong, strong willed. She came from a long line of very staunch feminists. My great grandmother uh, opened up Florence Carp opened. Boston's first interior design shop owned by a woman on Newbury street, her daughter, my grandmother, yeah, ran off and became a member of the Rockettes when she was young. (laughs) She was a professional dancer. Um, And then there was my mother who, you know, was educated, went to the university of Pennsylvania, was elegant. She, she rode horses and showed horses. uh, And she just, you know, she was, she was, we were all strong-willed. I have more of my mother in me in that way. And my father was a little, he was like the funny guy. He was like the, the, the storyteller entertainer at the party. Um, it really wasn't until we moved to Illinois that he was like, ah, wait, actually I'm the head of this household and you must bend to my will. And my stepmother could not have been more different than my mm. real mother. My stepmother mm-hmm. really believed, at least in those early days, believed that it was her duty to obey him. She had been working a full-time job at a factory called Burgess Norton. And when she got married, she stopped working. I mean, of course, there were a lot of kids. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, you know, she just, she, in those days anyway, would have never contradicted or crossed my father because she believed it was her duty not to. She, she, she dropped out of high school at 16 and had her first child. So she wasn't educated in the way that my mother was. She wasn't traveled in the way that my mother had been. Um, so it was, it was just, it, they were very, very different. And my father, as a result of that, became very different. By the time he died, I mean, he just died in, in at the tail end of 2019. He was more like that first father I knew. He was funny and fun to be around, but those in between years, definitely different. You write that after your mother died, you thought of yourself as a kind of, quote, infamous child, both watched and pitied. Your father must have been experiencing some terribly intense grief. 
it sounds like there were never moments where you could talk about what it felt to be the like to be the child of a mother who died and he couldn't talk to you and your brother about what it felt to be the husband of a woman who died who was such a force in the family is that right yeah yeah that's absolutely true and i'll tell you a, a brief little story that is not in the book my brother and i um <clears throat> went for many years without speaking not really for any particular reason other than that I lived in Cambodia. I lived overseas and, you know, we'll probably talk about that later, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. yeah, he and I during COVID uh, just after our father died, this was the summer of 2020. He and his son happened to be visiting me in Washington DC where I live now. <clears throat> and we decided to take our kids to Pittsburgh and show them the house that we had lived in back when we were, you know, t nine, 10, and, and that our mother had died in. And we drove there and it was called Ship and Drive. The house was 103 Ship and Drive. It was actually for sale when we arrived. We could have bought it for $300,000. Um, oh. And so we took a walk up and we saw on a mailbox the name of the, some kids that we used to play with. And I was like, they can't possibly still live here. You know, it's been 50 years almost. We rang the doorbell and wouldn't you know it, remember back in the summer of 2020, everybody's home, nobody's doing anything. <laughs> right. My playmate, Lynn Abel, Linny Abel, lived there now with her daughter and her mother. She was divorced. And we just, you know, fell over. Oh, I can't believe it. You're David and Rachel, whatever, whatever. And I said to her, you know, the night, the night that my mother died, we were taken to some neighbor's house to spend the night. And I don't, I can't remember what neighbor it was. And Lynn Abel said, oh, that would have been Mrs. Segan. She still lives there. I'm sure she's home now. Gosh. And I, my brother and I looked at each other like, you've got to be kidding. And so we went across the street, rang the bell. She answers. I recognize her immediately. Now I'm there with my daughter and my nephew. And I say, Mrs. Segan, I'm Rachel Snyder. And this is my brother, David Snyder. You were friends with our mother, Gail Snyder, when she died in that house in 1977. You know, I had to explain the whole story. She stumbled backwards. She said, the children, you're the children, you're the children. And I mean, we, it, it was stunning. But what came out of that conversation, and I've been in touch with her ever since, is that my, as my mother was dying, my father was really scared that she was not going to go to heaven because she was Jewish. And so he tried to get her to convert and she refused and she got angrier and angrier. And because she was friendly with all the neighborhood women, she would tell them about this. And Mrs. Segan said, we were all so angry with him. And my brother and I, it was like this light bulb went off, like, well, of course he moved us, right? After my mother dies, he's got no support himself in the neighborhood because he's been trying to erase her Judaism, <laughs> Mm. And it, it just, it really, it answered a lot of questions that my mm. brother and I had carried for decades. Is there a reason you didn't write about that in the book? <sighs> yeah, um, partly because I would, I would like to write about it as a fuller piece. Um, but also, you know, a life is the lives we live are very shapeless, right? We live and we, we make a decision and we turn right and something happens and then we make another decision and we turn left and it's, you know, and, but a memoir has to have shape to it. And there's a number of things that seem like big things that I didn't write about. For example, I had breast cancer myself last year, same thing that killed my mother. I did not write about it in the book and I'm fine now just for the record um, mm. because it was, it was such a different experience for me that it barely even, I mean, I had typhoid fever and I was sicker than when I had breast cancer, to be honest with you. So it just didn't, it didn't warrant that. I didn't write about my father dying. Um, the, the ending of the book when it came to me felt so pure and so true 
that I didn't want to muddy the emotional impact by writing like a, an afterward. I felt like, you know, sometimes the, the hardest thing about writing is knowing that an ending has come sooner than you expect it. And you don't trust your reader enough to get it. And so you write another, just another line in case they don't get it, you know? <laughs> and you, one of the things I've learned after 30 years of writing is that you, you have to look really hard at those endings because often you've ended it twice and your readers will get it. They always do. Readers are, are smart, sometimes smarter than the writer. I don't know if that answers your questions. Well, it does. I hear the professor yeah, creative the professor. writing here too. <laughs> yeah, and I love that. I love that. We're getting a lesson here too. Um, <laughs> you're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Rachel Louise Snyder. A as noted, she's a professor of creative writing and journalism at American University, um, and also the author of a new memoir titled "Women We Buried, Women We Burned." And you can hear us developing this conversation where Ms. Snyder is chronicling the loss of her mother and then her father's decision to join a pretty fundamentalist church and all that flows from there, including a, a violent childhood. Uh, it should be noted that Rachel is also the author of No Visible Bruises. Um, I mean, that's of course that's the thing that I think I interviewed you for No Visible Bruises. I've never forgotten the experience of reading that. I mean, that that's the, that's the experience, I think, that dominates here, that I'm trying to remember if I knew that you had had violence in your childhood when we talked about the epidemic of domestic violence. Is it something sure that you've... I'm sure you didn't. <laughs> I didn't know. Okay. Most people didn't I, yeah, know. Yeah, I doubt it. No, most people didn't know. My my personal friends knew, um, but you know, I didn't. I still don't equate the kind of violence that happened in my childhood with the kind of violence I reported on for no visible bruises, in part because um, what I was trying to get at was uh, systemic violence in no visible bruises. But what happened in my family felt more reactionary. Um, the paddling was pretty consistent until they broke the paddle. But the number of times where I came at my father or he came at me um, wasn't, uh, it, it, it wasn't systematic. It was maybe a half a dozen times, you know, maybe once or twice a year at the most. And I'm not trying to minimize it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just making a distinction that uh, for many of the victims, I spoke with that violence was was pretty constant, and um, it was a manner of of an abuser keeping power and control, and so it just feels a little different to me. I don't know what to do with that because I'm thinking it's so transgressive to experience violence from someone you love, whether it's a partner mm -hmm. or a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It crosses it crosses a line. And I don't excuse my father for it, but um you know I think we didn't have resources in those days in the way that we do now. We didn't have any kind of understanding of um uh, of why violence erupted in a family, you know, the, the, the power and control wheel didn't, wasn't created until the, the eighties by, by someone, you know, in, in Minnesota. Um, so I think there was just this way in which we felt kind of lost. And I felt, you know, I felt like, uh, uh, I had nothing to lose. And so there were no boundaries on, what I would do or what I would say or how I would act or how bad I could get. And my father was wholly unprepared for that. Um, I think that in some ways what ended up happening in our, in our house was the best 
possible outcome for me in a, in an ironic sense, because it got me out of the, the violence, the anticipation of violence. Um, I stopped doing drugs immediately. Once I, once I left my house, um, never did I mean, them again, even, even though they're, yeah, go ahead. You're talking about going into foster care at 15. So, no, I'm really talking about when I got kicked out at 16. Um, oh. You know, foster care was a very brief period of time where m- my father had, um, the paddle had long been broken <laughs> on me. And my father came into my room one night just after I'd gotten out of the shower. And he thought I had broken the mirror in the bathroom. And it turned out it was my stepsister. But... um he started to hit me and I normally I would fight back, but I couldn't fight back because I was trying to keep my towel around me. And I, he hit my legs like from my hip to my knee over and over and over again. And the next day, you know, it just felt like as I walked, I, my legs, my thighs felt like they'd been tenderized. And I walked into the guidance counselor's office, a social worker named Bob Martin and I closed the door, I pulled down my pants and he, you know, I was just bruised on both legs from hip to knee. And he, he said, I'm sorry, but I've, I've got to report this. I've got to make a call. And I remember thinking, why are you sorry? Like, all I want is for someone else to get involved. All I want is for someone to see what my father's doing. And so I was taken to a temporary foster home. The, the, foster father was a police officer who had other kids there that were also temporary. And I guess they investigated my family. I don't remember ever being like, I don't remember ever going to court or anything like that. Um, and they must have found that it, uh, that it didn't rise to the, to the level of abuse. And, and, you know, probably they interviewed the other kids and the other kids never got it quite as badly as I did because the other kids were never quite as bad as I was. So will you describe, so then you went back after you stayed for a while at foster care, you were back in your father's household and then you were kicked out at age 16. Can you describe what precipitated that? What that last fight in in your father's decision that you had to get out? It will surprise no one that I did very poorly in school. (laughs) I just, um, it wasn't that I wasn't smart. I just couldn't see how school mattered in a world in which um, I was living in an unsafe house. And um, I think it's interesting. I think my brother did the opposite. I think he buried himself in schoolwork and got really great grades and stuff. But by the fall, by the uh, spring of my sophomore year, I had missed so much school. I had blown off so much school and failed so many classes that I was called into the dean's office and expelled. Dean Dollinger expelled me. I had a 0.467 grade point average, which <laughs> I just got my transcript wow. a couple of years ago from from the current principal, actually, who saw a New York Times piece of mine where I mentioned Naperville North High School, and she got in touch. She looked at my records for me. <laughs> even I was shocked by that. I was like, boy, I, I didn't bet. even have a one point something. <laughs> um, so I was expelled from school, uh, but I had always worked since the age of 12. I'd always had some sort of a job. And so when I was expelled from school, I worked at a Mexican restaurant and um, I just tried to work more and more and more. And summer came and we were all getting older. And my father was fed up with the abuse, the language, the lack of control that he had um, over all of us, but mostly me. And so he sat us down on a Saturday in September, gave us each a binder with a typed up list of rules and said, you know, these are the rules. Now, if you cannot abide by these rules, you will be asked to leave. And the four of us, not one of us went home that night. 
um, mm. separately. I mean, I was with my stepsister, but I don't know where my stepbrother went. I, my real brother told me he just spent the entire night driving around on his motorcycle. He just told me that about six months ago. Um, mm. And we came home in the morning and there were four suitcases lined up in the foyer. And my dad said, pick one. So I picked a red and blue Samsonite. And um, I spent the next year and a half roughly living out of the trunk of my car. I slept on couches. I slept, sometimes slept in my car at the Fox Valley Mall. <laughs> um, wow. But the thing about mm. working in a restaurant, anyone who's worked in a restaurant will tell you that there is a sort of cobbled together family at restaurants. Oh, sure. And a lot of those yeah. waiters, waitresses, managers looked out for me. I mean, they gave me couches to sleep on. They gave me, you know, they gave me floors to sleep on. Um, you know, I could always eat. I had, I had a lot of chimichangas in those days. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it didn't occur to me that there was anyone out there who could have helped or would have helped. I did not know that you could get emancipated by the court. So I just thought I'm not old enough to sign a lease. I'm not old enough to open a bank account. I'm not old enough to get a credit card. Um, it was it was very hard. Those were desperate years. But I was also so glad to be out of my father's house. Like I chose sleeping in a car in the parking lot of a mall over being in my father's house. Yeah, it's... Before we, <clears throat> before we talk about um, you know, the work in the restaurant and what that leads to and the fact that you're now you're basically on your own. I, I don't want to miss something that you've written about. Uh, and that's the, the idea of sexuality that this church, this fundamentalist church that your father belonged to had, because uh, many of these prosperity gospel evangelical churches also adopted this purity vow thing for girls. Yes. I, I mean, I remember this yes. really clearly from, was it the 80s, the late 70s, the 80s? It didn't, uh, I don't remember that language, purity vow, until later. Okay. It may have come earlier, but I do, I absolutely remember the conversations around keeping yourself pure. What they sound yeah. like to you? Like, literally, that is it. Keep yourself pure. No one explained what sex was. We had no sex education. Um, they would couch the language in euphemisms, biblical kind of euphemisms, right? Like um, abstinence, uh, uh you know, I can't remember that they would use the word abs, you know, abs oh, abstain from all appearances of evil, right? So even mm -hmm. something like walking around holding hands was a little, I remember seeing this one couple teenagers who were holding hands in church one day. And I remember just being like, oh, wow, that's, they're so edgy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Girls were given rings, weren't they? W weren't young well, girls? Well, uh, yeah, those rings came. Rings or? Yeah, they came later. I th I think that was okay. more of a '90s thing. I was already long okay. gone out of my house by then, uh, and and no longer a virgin, so I didn't yeah, qualify. Long gone in that um, way too. Yeah, but it's absolutely so creepy. Uh, those rings, I really find them so disturbing, um, like at a gut level. Um, so why? what I'll say is no one ever explained anything to us. Um, we had no sex education. We just did this idea of purity, and we were supposed to sort of fill in the blanks. The part that is scary for me, there's a couple there's there's two points I'd like to make if if I may. One is that mm -hmm. there are currently eighteen states. Uh, when I last looked in the in the country that do not have mandated sex education, six of those states have opt in abstinence only education, which is mm -hmm. essentially what I had, which is nothing. So the idea that like this will work 
while giving no information with young people who don't know what they're doing and don't know the meaning of the word consent is an absolute recipe for disaster. And universities are grappling with the fallout of this, including my very own university, um, all over the country, because we have freshmen coming who've had little to no or sex only, uh, sorry, abstinence only education. There is a there is a price to pay down the line for that level of ignorance. The other point I want to make, and this is why I'm so grateful to you that you asked this question, is that I came from this long line of strong feminist women, but I didn't know what that meant. To me, that meant just be angry. And I was, I was angry a lot. But because I had no sense of how to talk to boys or what desire was or what my own uh, uh, biology was, I just let boys do whatever they wanted. You know, no one ever taught me the word no. So if a boy wanted to kiss me, I let him kiss me. I didn't ask myself if I wanted to kiss him back ever, not once. And so I ended up from about the age of 13 to at least probably... 21 or 22, maybe even a little older, long after I left my father's house. I don't even know how many people I had sex with. Lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, Because if they kissed me and they kept going, I did not know how to say no. And I did not know that I could say no. And I did not know that I was also supposed to have feelings for them. So I just mm-hmm. let anybody do whatever they wanted. And that came, I, I placed the blame of that directly at the feet of the church for dising, disempowering girls, me and hundreds of thousands of girls. And that, that damn ring, that is a disempowering uh, 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 symbol. Um. You can hear the anger in my voice when I talk about it. Mm -hmm. It makes me Mm -hmm. so angry. You know, I also wondered, Rachel, if some of your father's, that that deep, deep fury was because he suspected that you were out there doing, you know, some pretty intimate things, having sex with a lot of boys, and he had no control over that. And that was so in such opposition to the tenets of this church that he belonged to. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't thought of it quite directly as that, but I think, I think you're right. I mean, he certainly knew, I found out later, you know, I had a down, I had a downstairs bedroom and so I could sneak out my window very easily. Now why they didn't (laughs) just change me with one of my brothers and put me upstairs. I do not know, but they didn't. (laughs) And so for years, I would sneak out my window, and I thought my father never knew. And of course, I found out that he did know, and he would get in his car, and he would drive around, and he would pray for me. Um, And I was out there having sex with boys, but I was also out there doing a lot of drugs. Uh, I had no sense of fear when it came to drugs. I I came home, I I recount this moment in the book, in, in the throes of a really intense acid trip one evening, and I'm just out of control, laughing. I'm laughing at the mirrored wallpaper. I'm crying. I'm doubled over. I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, I look uh, like, a, like a person deep in the throes of an acid trip. So he mm. knew I was out there doing some kind of drugs. Um, I don't, I guess he probably thought I was out there with boys as well, Um but I don't know if there was a hierarchy of, of badness when he thought about it, right? Like mm. she's out there doing drugs. She's out there having sex. She's out there listening to rock and roll, you know, like to him, all those <laughs> things carried equal, the equal weight of <laughs> sin and, and terribleness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I've asked if you'll read a, an excerpt, um, this is after you've dropped out of high school, you've worked, you've gotten your life together, you're, you're shockingly self-sufficient for being such a young person, you've got your GED, you realize that you're going to need a college degree. 
and your dad calls and he wants to meet for lunch. And this is a passage. Well, why don't you say kind of whatever you want to set up the passage? Yeah, I had um, I had fallen into booking local rock and roll bands, which was beautifully symbolic for how much my father <laughs> hated rock and roll. Um, and the producer of one of those bands um, said, you know, you've got to go to college. You can't just book rock and roll bands. Like you, you've got to get a business degree. Like this is a serious business. And I remember saying to him, his name was Frank Papillardo. He's, I mean, he's a big producer still today, produced Stevie Nicks most recent album. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. He said she gave him a signed guitar and stuff. Um, and he said, I'm going to make an appointment for you. And he called an admissions counselor at a school. And I don't know what he said to that man, Rick Spencer, but that man agreed to meet with me. I had no high school diploma, no GED at the time, mm. no promise of anything, but he decided to give me a chance at this tiny, tiny school in Illinois called North Central College. And so I'm accepted to the school and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to pay for it. My father is super proud of me because of course I'm 19 at this point. Um, and I had not been stable until very, very recently, really until I could sign a lease legally myself. So my father told me that my mother had left us college funds and I didn't know that. That was news to me. And he said, you know, meet me for lunch at J.B. Winbury's and we'll talk about it. So this is us after lunch in the parking lot when he finally brings up this pot of money that my mother has apparently left us. My father said he'd invested our money in gold and silver, trying to grow it, as he put it. But the market for metals had tanked. He'd lost it all, every penny. My mother had understood something that only came to me in that moment. I couldn't trust him to provide for me in her absence. I was trying to help, he said. I was trying to take care of you. He was tearing up, holding his mouth in a thin line. It tore me in half, both his own sorrow and his abject failure, both her foresight and her absence. It's okay, Dad, I told him. It's okay. Although it was very much not okay. I wanted to scratch his eyes out, punch him in the face as hard as I could, shake him till he passed out. But as much as I wanted to rage at him, I also couldn't, not when he was showing such clear vulnerability. Sympathy and anger tangled inside me. In the space of two minutes, I'd gained and lost a college fund. I see now the church as the first in a long line of my father's opportunities, his shaky investments and get-rich-quick schemes. Bestline, Amway, Shackley, Herbalife, no-run pantyhose, land in California, water purifiers, roundhouses, and some kind of magnets that were supposed to make hard water soft. He got a financial broker's license and tried to give free seminars at libraries, but no one ever came. He'd up the ante into currency trading, into some investment scheme so secretive that he once took me out to his car to talk about it for fear that his house was bugged. A land lease in Texas for oil, later a portion of a Bitcoin. But this time it had been my money, my future, a promise made by a dying mother to her children. A mother who knew her husband, her widower, couldn't be counted on to care for us. People would say of my father that he was the most generous person they knew, and it's true that he'd give away his last dollar. He knew the life story of his mechanics and his grocery cashiers. He knew his bank tellers, and he took in every stray dog that ever wandered past him. But he also took things he was not entitled to take. This is the part of my dad that is so difficult to reconcile, the part that is arrogant and foolish the part that believes he deserves more than others because his God supposedly told him so. Do you forgive me? He asked. What could I say? I told him I forgave him. Then I drove 90 miles an hour home and raged in my apartment, playing music so loud my landlord pounded on my door to shut the hell up. 
Rachel Louise Snyder, reading from her memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Rachel about her new memoir. Um, oh, man, we could have done the entire show just in <laughs> and all the undercurrents of that excerpt, but, but I have a couple questions, mm. one of which is when you, at 19, when you realized that your father was proud of how you'd pulled your life together and stabilized. Did it matter? I mean, were you still, did you still love him and his pride in you mattered? Yeah, I, I want to say, no, it didn't matter. I had become so self-sufficient. But the fact is, he still and would always be my only living parent. And so everything about him mattered. He mattered so much. Um, and his approval mattered. Uh, what didn't matter anymore was his own belief system in church. Mm-hmm. I never looked back. I just, you know, I saw that as, uh, as a poison that I had purified myself finally from, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, he mattered. And this recognition I mean, this is something that I think most of us never, maybe never realize, but we we don't get to a recognition of it until we're adults, how our parents see the other parent. I mean, you, you realize that your mother, boy, saw all of your father's flaws and really worried about those flaws and what they would mean for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was sort of shocking. Um, and it was sad, too, because she saw him, but she didn't, she, she couldn't, she couldn't see all the way, right? Like, mm-hmm. she leaves me this college fund, but he still manages to get around it. You know, my, my mother had a will. And I never thought about the fact that she had a will until my father died December 20th, 2019. And I found her will for the first time. Hmm. And in that will, she leaves little pots of money to my brother and I, I have no idea how much probably wouldn't have been that much, but it's like a tiny bit of stock in IBM, a tiny bit of stock in GE. Like these were the seventies, right? So they were going to go with, um, you know, a tiny, a tiny bit of money for college here and there and whatever. And maybe it would have only amounted to 4,000 or $5,000 or whatever, you know? Um, but we never saw any of that. I have no idea what happened to any of it. You'd go on to college, as you've noted, and you'd pursue a degree. And in your junior year, you do this amazing thing that I wish I had known about. I did study abroad. Oh, my senior year. My senior year. Senior year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do this semester at sea. God, how did I miss this? Yeah. And it seems really (laughs) transformational for your life and your focus on what you want to, who you want to be. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of students go and do a study abroad thing in Spain or in London or something. Um, and certainly that was an option at my school, although I did not come from a family of travelers. So I never thought about that as an option. That seemed like a thing that other kids did. And then my uncle in New York, I had my my grandmother's brother, so he was my great uncle, um, sends me a brochure for this ship that's going to sail around the world and says he'll pay half of it. It was $12,000 if I can come up with the other half, Um, which was just an enormous amount of money to me then $6,000. But earning money had never been tough for me. I was (laughs) always willing to work a hundred hours a week. Um, So that I was like, okay. Um, And this ship didn't go to places like London and Paris, although I've been to those places since and they're wonderful, but (laughs) it went to places like India, Kenya, Brazil. And it literally opened up the world to me. I mean, 
it opened everything. It, it, it gave me a new appreciation for language, a new appreciation for culture. I remember going to South Africa and they, you know, you spend this time on the ship studying wherever you're about to disembark next. So we would be at sea for long stretches, right? Where you don't see land for days or, or even to, at the longest point, two weeks, we didn't see land. Um, and it was magical. And I remember them talking about, okay, we're going to South Africa now. It was 1991. So apartheid had only been written off the books for a couple of years. Um, and I remember thinking like, okay, I have to brace myself for the racism I'm going to see. It's going to be awful, you know? And in fact, I get off that ship and what I see is something very similar to America. So mm. similar that I mm. cannot disentangle the racism of South Africa and the racism of my own country. Um, it really, it really was an unbelievable eye-opening trip. You know, we, we went to the Taj Mahal in India, but we also went to a bunch of orphanages and we learned about the, 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 the poverty and the inequality. And, you know, that's, that's not something that is part of an education, that kind of experiential learning. And it turned me into someone who wanted nothing in life except to travel and to travel furthest, hardest, however, however I could. And it's arguable that I've never stopped traveling. <laughs> yeah. You know, I really, I love what you've articulated about travel and I really believe in it. You say, this is perhaps the most profound lesson of travel that you don't really know the place and culture you've come from until you've left it. I, I wonder if you yeah. just reflect on that a bit. Yeah, I, that's, that's one of the most important things that I learned going to places that were so wildly different from the States, right? You, you can go to England um, and there's, there's enough that is similar that I don't necessarily know that you learn this from going to England. I love England. I was married to a Brit, but it's not the same as going to Laos, right? Where mm -hmm. every step you take is like, oh, why are they doing what they're doing? Oh, why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> so travel for me helped me identify what it actually meant to be American and from America. Mm -hmm. But it also contextualized things that I hadn't known were particularly American, like the prosperity gospel. <laughs> you know, we don't associate religion as being mired in culture, but it absolutely is mired in culture. And I think you see that more and more with the political uh, bedfellows that are created, for example, between the Republican Party and the and the um, Christian fundamentalism, mm -hmm. Christian fundamentalism movement, right? Um, but I didn't I, leaving America was was the thing that made me understand and appreciate. Oh, my dad is, you know, he calls himself Christian evangelical, but what he is is a particular kind of American. And I began to really have the, the privilege of questioning um, what elements of how, like what elements of how I was built came from my culture and how could I interrogate those a little bit more? You know, I'll give you one quick example. I don't, I don't think mm -hmm. this is in the book, but um and I'm sure we'll get to this maybe, but, you know, I moved to Cambodia in 2003 to be a journalist. Um, and I, I covered uh, the whole Southeast Asia region for Marketplace. Um, yay, American public media. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and in Cambodia at the time, and it's it's changing somewhat, I think, because of Western influences of NGOs and whatnot. But if you had a car accident in Cambodia, if you rear-ended somebody, here in America, we all know the rule. If you rear-end someone, it is it is the fault of the person who has done the rear-ending, right? Like, there's never any question about that. And they're the person whose insurance pays out, et cetera, et cetera. In Cambodia, if you rear-end somebody or have any kind of accident at all, there's never a question of whose fault it is. 
that's not even part of the conversation. The idea of justice in Cambodia will come from who has the bigger, more expensive vehicle. They're the one who will pay because they have had more luck in life. They've had a luckier life. So if a Land Rover hits a motorcycle, the Land Rover is going to pay, even if it's the motorcycle's fault. Hmm. It's an entirely different way of looking at justice that comes from culture. And that's the kind of thing that just blew my mind. The more I traveled, the more I was like, everything is about where you come from. Everything. You know, I had a geologist say to me once on an assignment, sure, where you come from is like gum on your shoe. You can't get rid of it no matter how hard you try. (laughs) (laughs) What a great analogy. Uh, What I wanted to ask you about your experience in Cambodia is how, and, 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 and many of these assignments that you've taken around the world and then brought back to your classroom. I mean, I, I wonder how you see the contrast of this kind of travel and the kind of reporting you've done with what these, the idealism, the belief systems that your young journalist and writing students come into the classroom with and how you impart some of that, I'm sure very subtly and and lovingly to your students. Yeah. You know, um, lovingly, yes. Subtly, no. (laughs) (laughs) I always wished I was more subtle, but I am a natural storyteller and this is something I get from my dad. And so, um, Yes, I teach one of the, one of the more popular classes I teach is a class in literary journalism. And so whatever they end up writing about, I am forever sort of poking away at, Hmm. um, things that they take for granted, right? That, that may be different in some other part of the world. Um, and I think, I did. I lived in London as well for a couple of years, but I talk a lot more often about Cambodia because there was such a uh, learning curve for just for all kinds of things. You know, one of the wonderful things I got out of Cambodia was this belief that um, what we don't know, we truly don't know. And, and what I mean by that mm-hmm. is. The Khmer believe that there is a world of ghosts that live right alongside our living human world. And those ghosts, which are largely made up of our ancestors, will cause mischief or cause good things to happen, depending on whether or not you are paying homage to them and you are respecting them. You're going to the pagoda and lighting incense for them, giving gifts so that they're not wanting in whatever plane of existence they're on right now. And it it became very similar to the way that Christians talk about uh, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. And I remember one of my favorite stories of Cambodia was this woman in Stung Trang, which is a, a far North province in the, in the country that's on the border of Laos. And she was a spiritual, um, uh, like soothsayer in her, in her village. She was the most powerful woman. She communed with the spirits and the ghosts. She had emblems of, of spirituality and ghosts all over her house. And Christian missionaries came to her village one day and the people pointed, you know, the missionaries and said, well, she's our, our most powerful leader, village elder. She's the one you should talk to. And they went and they talked to her and they shared the gospel and shared the good news. And they told her about Jesus, God, and the Holy Ghost. And she said, the Holy Ghost, he sounds like the most powerful. And they said, oh, yes, yes, he is the most powerful, the Holy Ghost. She said, okay, I I believe. Yes, I do. I believe. And they went away telling a story of her great conversion. But for her, she simply incorporated the Holy Ghost into the Buddhist animist beliefs mm-hmm. of all the other ghosts that she already had. So she mm-hmm. put a symbol of the cross above her front door. Cause she thought, well, another ghost is just adding to the great collection of ghosts that I commune with. 
So she'd incorporated it into her culture. And it's that kind of story that I, that I share with my students when they want to write about religion or they want to write about, you know, fundamentalism or whatever. And so, you know, I do, I do it, I guess my, my way of doing it is to share stories. I don't, uh, I'm not like judgy, um, but stories have, have all the power you need, you know? (laughs) Last question here. I I know there was a, I, I think you were thinking about when you were in Cambodia whether whether to have children. It, it was at the period of your life when you were trying to decide. Yes, yes. When I first moved there, I had I had visited there in the mid nineties, and the place had really stayed with me. And so I went there to cover the war crimes tribunals, which turns out I never did, <laughs> never covered that. Um. And my first couple of years there, I ended up living there for six years, but my first couple of years, I would hear these stories about ghosts and things. And I would be like, oh, that's interesting. But I, I don't believe in that because I'm American and, you know, I'm from the West. But the more stories you begin to hear, and not just stories from Cambodians, but stories from fellow expats. I had a, a good friend who worked for the State Department. She was an economic officer. And we were at lunch one day and she told me, that she and her husband had been staying in a hotel out in the countryside and she woke in the middle of the night one night and saw a man walk across the floor of her hotel room and disappear into the wall. And she was so scared that she didn't want to wake her husband and say, say anything. So she just sort of laid there for the rest of the night. And in the morning, her husband woke her and said, sweetie, I didn't want to scare you, but last night in the middle of the night, I saw a man walk across our floor and disappear into the wall. And you hear stories like that from diplomats, from people who are, you know, heading NGOs or big projects, and you cannot ignore them after a while. I had, um, I had multiple, I began to have multiple stories with my own dog. I adopted a dog when I was living there and the Khmer believe that ghosts will often speak through dogs. And, my own dog saved my daughter's life when my daughter was six months old and had a heat stroke in her stroller and we didn't know it. Um, and the dog is the one who alerted us. I mean, that's just incredibly perceptive. But a couple of years into my stay there, once I had softened to the idea that maybe the ghosts are real and maybe they're every maybe this is just what they call them. Maybe they're the angels and demons that people in America talk about, but it's all the same kind of unknown world. And the light in my apartment just turned mustard yellow, like this monsoon color. And I, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that I was not alone in that room. And I knew exactly who was there with me. And it was my mother. And <laughs> you can't stop there. I didn't Rachel. know if you wanted me to tell the rest of the story. <laughs> I do. I, I hate to give it away, but I'll say it briefly. It was my All mother. Right. And I, like, what do you say to someone who has been gone for 35 years of your life? And at this point, I've already outlived her. I was about 37 And I could sense her there with me. And there was really only one question that I had, which was, I can't decide if I should have a child. I wish you were here to help me make that decision. And part of how I know without any doubt at all that she was really there was from the honesty of her answer, because I had grown up believing that because I had no maternal model, I somehow had deficits when it came to being a woman. I somehow didn't know what, uh, what secrets other women knew, you know, how to wear heels, what to carry in a purse. I still don't carry a purse today, you know. <laughs> Her answer was, even if I were there, I couldn't help you with that decision. And I suddenly realized, oh, It's not that my mother would have had all the answers. It's that I have to carve out my own life. 
It was such an important moment for me. And it was incredibly freeing. It was as if my mother said, I set you free to make the life you want. And I have. Rachel Louise Snyder's new memoir is titled Women We Buried, Women We Burned. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was incredibly meaningful to me.